Remain standing for the reading of Word of God from Matthew 6, beginning at verse 31 through verse 34, as we now finish this chapter, but certainly not the Sermon on the Mount yet. Now hear the Word of God. Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would send your spirit upon the preaching of the word and that it would go forth today with great power and bring forth the fruit that would please you. May there be a radical change and adjustment in some of our lives that from this day forward it would be different. Our conscience would be bound with the truth and our lives would be liberated from worry and anxiety. That you would give us the faith needed to walk by grace and that we would be faithful this day to your name and faithful tomorrow and that you would work mightily and powerfully in us. We pray that this would be a time of great encouragement in the goodness of the gospel a time of strengthening our faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and all of the provision that he has provided for us in him. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would work the applications of the principles here, of the commands here, of the precepts here, and that it would be woven into the fabric of our lives, that we would be greater light and illumination in this dark world in such contrast to the unbelieving world in which we live. So pray, Lord, that you would be pleased with this time and with this message as we hear it and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We come to a passage this morning that really has meant a lot to me. In fact, it is 26 years ago this summer that I was preparing to enter into seminary in the fall semester, having been called to the ministry and having given a letter of resignation to a job, and that was quite um, well for us, providing for our needs. And it was in this 26 years ago that I did not know how God was going to provide for that next step. I did know that the next step is the one he wanted us to take. As I began to think about what the future would hold and with the great uncertainties, my pastor says, Marion, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. And there's a, a broad application for us in that. And so as I was reading the scriptures around his exhortation, I came to this passage and particularly to this verse 33, and that became a life verse for Chesley and me. Perhaps that tells you a lot when you know the context. Perhaps it tells you a lot if you've known me. Because I was a man who tends to be given to worry and worry about the things of tomorrow. I turn things over in my mind and meditate upon them and my imagination can, can be fairly wild, right? Uh, you sympathize with any of that or is this just all foreign to you? And so I came to this passage where it was a great promise. Marion, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you have nothing ever 
to worry about, ever. So we were going to seminary. We had gotten into the throes of things, and very unusually, um, my, my boss created a job position for me to continue with Hewlett-Packard part-time while we put ourselves through seminary. But it was on a shoestring budget. Um, we were scraping by, but we were, our needs were being met. It was not in any sense of, uh, of, of living at a poverty level. Um, God was providing. God was very gracious and merciful. But there was this tendency to, to, well, what about this? And when my job contract ends next year and I still have two more years of seminary, what about that? It was on a time that we were visiting uh, Bobby and Jiddu back in their Eastman home. No, it was back in Jacksonville where we were. Uh, they were still in Jacksonville at the time, at the very beginning. We were visiting back in Jacksonville. And we went to, over, Chesley went to visit uh, um, uh, an aunt of hers who loved jewelry and had a lot of jewelry. And in that visit, at, in that afternoon, she gave Chesley a ring. It was a pretty gaudy ring, very large setting in silver, and in the middle of it was a, a little, little diamond. And we really didn't have a, a lot of interest in it um, necessarily, and it didn't have a lot of emotional uh, baggage tied with it. And uh, so we looked at it, and my brother-in-law was in the jewelry business at the time, so we dropped it off to Terry, who then undressed the stone from its surrounding, and all of a sudden we, we realized that we had something of greater value than what we had originally understood. And so Terry appraised uh, the diamond, and the diamond was a little larger and more valuable uh, than we had even imagined. And so I had Terry, my brother-in-law, put it in a, in a new setting and put it on consignment in his jewelry shop um, in order to sell it, thinking that this was going to get us through the end of school without having to take a loan out, without Chesley having to work outside the home, which were two prayers that we principally prayed for when we went to seminary, that Chesley would not work outside the home and that we would not owe any man any money when we left seminary. So thinking that this was God's provision for us, we put it up and day by day he continued to meet our needs until the end of seminary, some two years later, two and a half years later, uh, and the ring never sold, and yet we never needed it. And we thought we were. So upon graduation, I, um, I called Terry and I said, you know, take that ring and now reset it in a necklace and I'm going to give it to my wife. This will be the emblem of God's faithfulness to us of our life verse together. And so my brother-in-law took the ring and, according to my instruction, was supposed to put the one little diamond in a, in, a, in a setting. And he calls me up, having already FedExed it into where I was to be. And he said, well, Marion, I couldn't find a setting that just had the one diamond, so I added some other diamonds to it. And you can just, you know, catch up with me later on that one. 
I'm like, well, I didn't ask for that. <laughs> uh, and she goes, well, you know, if you don't, she didn't like it, we can have the diamonds removed. Well, if you ever know anything about a lady, to give her a diamond and ask for them back is just not how that works. That's not how they're wired. Perhaps many of you have never seen this because um, Chesley does not wear this. Uh, she doesn't wear jewelry on the Lord's Day in worship. But this, this is the necklace uh, with this marquee-cut diamond that is the emblem of God's faithfulness to, to us. And so I wrote a poem to, him which, to her, which I will not read uh, my cheesy poem, but it was, uh, Seek Ye First is the title of the poem. And it was centered around our life first. And now here I come, 26 years later, looking at the faithfulness of God, and now I have to preach from this passage preaching as a man who is still struggling in some ways of apprehending the truthfulness of that promise and preaching yet with great hope, looking back to see, yes, there is absolutely no reason to worry for today or tomorrow because God has been faithful, abundant, and above all that we could ask or think so that our cup runneth over. And so we come to this passage beginning at verse 31, but before we do, I'd like to at least go back and rehearse just briefly where we came from last Lord's Day in verse 19. And in that passage, the Lord has told us, in fact, He expects us to be released from anxiety and worry so that we can be the light to the Gentiles or the unbelieving world. As we come to verse 25, he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. And what he's saying here to us is, I want you to stop worrying. Which is a way in which that verb and that command is given, assuming that we are afflicted to this, and he comes to the place where he says, I want you to now stop it. And then he begins to question our worrying with reasons to bring us to faith. And he gives four questions there. Isn't life more than material things? Doesn't God feed the birds and you're more valuable than they are? And, you know, even if you weren't, but you are, but even if you weren't, which of you could prolong a single minute of his life by worrying about it? Now look at, look at Solomon arrayed in all his glory. And you know what? If you lack clothing, is God not going to provide for you as well? So the point what Jesus is doing is he's showing us the very unreasonableness, the, un, the, the nonsensibleness of worrying about our material things. The facts really are not on our side. And he's going to reason this way to his people But the problem is, in verse 30, it is your lack of faith. O ye of little faith, why do you worry? Now before us, as we, that's where we left off, is these verses beginning at verse 31. And this is our Lord's final counsel on this topic of worry. And that counsel is going to move forward and step forward here in three commands. Verse 31, do not worry. Verse 33, seek. And in verse 34, do not worry. 
What I'd like to do is take those final three commands to to us as a precept and that which we can only obey by faith. And I would like to take them in a little different order so that we look at the two negatives first and we end on that, that positive command. Now, when he gives us three commands and not to worry and to be seeking something, you must be about this. This is still part of his context in the sermon where he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is a part of a righteous life that distinguishes us from the world. You have to be about this. This is not a good suggestion. This is not just for your edification. This is for the sake of God's name and His kingdom that you must take heed to these commands. The first command is given to us, and I'm going to take this almost in reverse order, but it's in verse 34. Do not worry about your future. He says there in verse 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now this is where he concludes this chapter. He wants us to stop here today. He does not want us to worry about our future. And the reason he says this is because tomorrow will take care of itself. And then the next line explains that, for each day has its own trouble. Now what's implied in that statement? What's implied? Bert, what's implied in that statement? I'm going to be like Mark Robinette. I'm going to start calling people out. What's implied in that statement? I think Chris mouthed it. We're going to have some trouble. Tomorrow is going to have some trouble. Now, some people live life as though they, if they could only get through this trial, then with all of that now settled and this peace now finally apprehended, only to be frustrated again when new troubles come again tomorrow. Oh. They live in such a way that they are always about relieving the present trouble in, so that no more will come. They live in order to keep everything quiet and under control, and their whole lives are spent that way. They're worrying about the future. And the Lord here implies, there's going to be trouble tomorrow too. He's setting some expectations here, and He doesn't want you to be trying to control everything about tomorrow, because that's going to busy your minds and fixate upon things in which is not of faith, but like the Gentiles. And you're supposed to be light to them, and you're working just like that. No, you don't need to worry about tomorrow today. That's His point. The Lord is telling us not to imagine those troubles ahead of time. Not to turn them over and over in our minds. Anxiously, like we have no promises, like we have no Heavenly Father who will care for us, like we have no track record of Him who has cared for us these many years. Because I don't know about you, I do know about you, that's why oftentimes God works in the preacher's life 
So that when you say, man, you were just stepping all over my toes. How did you know? I'm like, because I'm just preaching to myself. And I know you're like me. My imagination exaggerates tomorrow's troubles. Yours does too. My imagination will color tomorrow's troubles and it will always color it in the wrong shade. And the fact is that God will spread the allotment of all of our troubles over our entire life so that no trouble for any given day will be more than we can bear. Okay? Yeah, you're going to have troubles tomorrow, but not more than you can bear. There's no reason to try to control it today. Not even any reason that you can, nor worry about it. God's going to give you fresh grace for your troubles and your sins for the day in which you live. But He does not promise provision for anxiety that anticipates and exaggerates and overloads today with tomorrow's imagined troubles. Grace is God's allotment for you today. The more you can settle yourself in here, the more you can believe this, the more liberated and free you are going to live. Whatever your need is for today, that's what God is going to give you. Whatever you have need, you will have. Now this is how he ends this passage, to keep us from fixating on material things and to be worrying about tomorrow that's not even happened yet. So the last command he gives is don't worry about tomorrow. It'll take care of itself when it gets here and God's grace will be sufficient for you then. Now God does not want you fixating your life on the material concerns of your future. That will hinder your testimony. That will dampen your effectiveness for the gospel. That will diminish your present ministry in seeking God's kingdom and His righteousness first and foremost in your life. You cannot have worry for future events control your life. You can't worry about getting cancer tomorrow. You can't worry about having a heart attack tomorrow. You cannot worry if you lose your job tomorrow. You can't worry if you're not going to have enough retirement saved up for when that time comes. You can't worry about the big layoff that is the buzz of the coffee counter. You cannot worry about your future. And glorify God with your life. This is part of the unbelieving worldview who does not have a heavenly Father. And therefore, we come to command number two, which is actually the first command of the three given back to us in verse 31. So I'm backing up. Therefore, do not worry. This is the second time, actually the first, but the second I'm covering here, but it's in the form of a command. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? Now, the form of this verb is different than the one back in 25, where therefore it says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. The form of the verb is different. 
In verse 25, it says, stop, stop doing this. In verse 31, the verb is in the form, don't ever begin this again. He's assuming by the time we get there that, okay, we've gotten this now. We have been uh, encouraged in our faith. We have been reasoned well from the Scriptures with Jesus and His words of promise here. And now we can apprehend this. And we've got the, the, the tools, if you will, to be able to stop worrying. And then in verse 31, he says, do not ever begin this again. So after he commands us to stop He reasons with us. And he says, do not get into that cycle of worry ever again. And this day, you need to come to to the truth. And you need to come to this place of reckoning. That Jesus has reasoned with you. And you need to trust His promises. And you should not begin the cycle of worry in your life again. What kind of change would that make in a person's spirit, his countenance, if he lived by that each day of his life? I'm not worried about my future. I'm not worried of what I'm going to eat, drink, what I'm going to be clothed with. I have let my needs known to God, and He knows my needs. And I'm not ever going to go down that cycle ever again. If you are trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior for all of your eternality in your soul, you can trust Him to take care of everything that He has called you to do. Faithful is He that calleth you who also will do it. And if we fall back into a worry cycle, we need to understand that we are sinning. Now this is not something that we go around judging one another with. This is all something we're weak in and we're prone to. But just know that you are falling back into a sin when you worry. Call it what it is. And repent of it. And then get to the cross as fast as you can and cling to the promises of Christ and His redemption. In fact, folks, I'm going to say that you need to bind your conscience here with the Word of God and make this an issue of your conscience. If you fall back into a worry cycle, your conscience should trouble you. You are wrong in this, Marion. You should not be doing this. You're like the Gentiles. You're like the unbelieving world who worries and is fixated on material things in the future to the extent that you are not glorifying God in this spirit. You must not return to this. Now, he gives two reasons for why we should not worry. And the first reason there is given to us in the wrong chapter. In verse 32. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. That's the first reason. What he's saying here is you are not to worry because... This is what the Gentiles do. Now, why does he bring up the Gentiles? Remember that Matthew was, a, was written to the Jews and to a primarily a Jewish audience. And so Jesus often addresses his Jewish audience in a manner that appeals to them 
with their own view of themselves. Now, the Jews had a mentality that they were, they were superior to the Gentiles. And the Lord is saying, in effect, even the, that those that you look down on are characterized by this fixation on material things. Now, it's important to note here, when God speaks to His people, He never appeals to us in those terms that you are superior to others. And therefore, you ought to act better than others. That's not how He appeals to us. Jesus does not appeal to us according to our superiority. Absolutely not. But by the magnitude of our privilege that God has given to us. You are a favored people. He has taken you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you in the kingdom of light. You have a great responsibility. You have a great privilege. And that grace and that favor ought not to make you feel superior, but it ought to make you feel more secure. That's what he's getting at there. That's what he's saying. And what he's arguing here is when you act like lost people who have no God and no heavenly Father, then you are as lost people are. Those people are going to fixate on the material world. The material world and the experiences of life. That's what lost people get up thinking about every morning. That's what drives them. That's what motivates them. They are fixed on the material world alone. What money is, what money can buy, or what experiences I can experience. That's what they're preoccupied with. That's what drives them. That's what motivates them. This becomes the essence of life to them. And they do not live at all for the higher reasons other than what they can have, what they can enjoy, what they can do, what they can experience in life. Which is a very undue focus and fixation on the material world. And worry and anxiety are an integral part of that worldview. Because if that is solely your fixation, then the result will certainly be worry and anxiety. That tends to threaten the very things that motivate you and threaten the things that you seek for. And Jesus has called us to light, to be light to this lost, dark world who lives that way, who is anxious about those things. And if we live by the same value system that they live by, with that same kind of fixation, the same results will come. And he says, that should not be true of my people who have God as their heavenly Father and who knows these things. And if we worry like the unbelieving world, if we live like the world who has no God that cares for us, if we live like one who has no heavenly Father who particularly loves us, who has given us no promises to claim or to believe, or we have no past experience to look back to to bolster our faith, if we're going to live like that, then we will not be light to the world. 
That's the kind of hopeless darkness that Jesus saved you out of. So one reason not to worry about your life or the material world is because the world of unbelievers fixate on those things and you are not like them. There's a second reason not to worry that he's given there in the continuation of that text. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. He doesn't doesn't dismiss the fact that each of us have material needs. He doesn't minimize the fact that money and the things that money can buy are essential to life and we need them. He knows you have these necessities. He knows your needs. And David said in that psalm that we sang this morning from Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. Now, there are very rare exceptions to that of God's people. And when there are exceptions, there's a special grace that has been given to that servant of Christ for a very specific reason, for the kingdom of God in a very narrow exception. But they are very, very rare. In fact, so rare that David himself could say, I have never seen it. If you have given your life to Jesus, you are a child of God who has a loving Heavenly Father, and your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of everything in this life. And not only does He know that, He has promised that He will take care of them, and there is no need for you to worry about it because God knows. Pastor, you don't understand. I I need $2,000 by the end of this week, or fill in the blank is going to happen. God knows. God knows. I need clothing. God knows. We need a dependable car. God knows. I don't know how I'm going to make it to retirement. I have no sense. God knows. God knows. You know, you think about a heavenly father and your own earthly father. Uh, Do you think your earthly father knows of the needs of his children in this household? You think about our children here. I, I, I thought about this a little bit this morning and thought about my own children. My children can walk into our pantry on any given day at any time of the day and they just assume there's food there, and there has been. And they don't worry about it. In fact, our children can walk into the pantry, and not only do they have their bare essentials met, but they can pull out the sugar and the flour and the butter and more butter and even more butter and more sugar, and then they can make these creative things that are absolutely beyond what is just the bare essentials in life. And they don't worry about it. They assume it's there. And if, if your earthly father knows how to give these things to your earthly children, how much more the heavenly father knows how to give you everything you need for life and godliness and the fullness of the spirit and the joy of eternal life so that your cup is flowing over with abundance. 
your Father knows. So don't worry. Don't ever get in this downward cycle again because the Gentiles do that and you're not like the world of unbelievers. You have a heavenly Father that loves you and cares for you. And that's the point. And now the positive. The positive activity that counters this worry that in fact replaces it and displaces it from your life as we found in verse 33. But seek First, the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things, those things you worry about, will be added to you. Seek first means to make this the priority of your life. This is what you get up thinking about. If you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, this is what you get up thinking about. This is what you go to bed dreaming about. This is what drives you. This is what you are to be actively seeking. The Gentiles seek the material world alone. You should be seeking those things which are above. You should be seeking God's kingdom, God's righteousness, first and foremost in your life. The two things that we are to seek here are given to us. And they're both God's, His kingdom and His righteousness. It is God's kingdom. It is God's righteousness. It is God's things, His rights, His glory, His name, His will. All of these things we are to be seeking first and foremost in our lives. If you like that rich young ruler who comes to Jesus... On the brink of the kingdom. You could see the tenderness in his heart. You could see the genuineness in his question. You can see the posture in his spirit. But on the brink of the kingdom, because he was hesitating, he was worried. He weighed it in his mind about what the implications would be if he gave it all up to follow Jesus. Because Jesus said, because he had much wealth. But if you're like that rich young ruler, just hesitating on the fence right now, worried or thinking through the ramifications, is it worth giving it all up for Jesus? But what about tomorrow? What about my lifestyle? What about all these things? Then you need to set it all aside right now and stop fixating on that and get into the kingdom. Get into the kingdom. Seek God's righteousness. You know, when people are challenged like that in their life, they they tend to kind of help themselves a little bit um, and comfort themselves and say, well, I'm not all that bad. Right? When, when, When the ultimatum is given, just like Jesus to the rich young ruler, I'm not all that bad. And they're relying on their righteousness to some degree. And that's no good because the command to seek God's righteousness and the only righteousness whereby you're going to be saved and come into eternal life is the righteousness of Christ Himself given to you freely as you come to trust Him and follow Him. And then once we do, once we receive the righteousness of God found in Jesus, our lives... 
as Christians are then completely given over to God's causes. And it's the best life you will ever know. It is that kingdom and that righteousness that gives you your purpose and your cause. What do you hope for in your future? What do you hope will be said of you after you die? What is it that you're living for? Do you have a cause for which you get up in the morning seeking these things? Do you have God's rights as the priority for what you're seeking with all of your earthly life? And if you do, you have nothing to worry about. But if your life isn't primarily aimed for God's rights first and foremost in your life, it is a very, very low level of living. And that will produce a very worry-laden life filled with anxiety and fear. And you don't have to live that way. You shouldn't live that way. And it's not right for you to live that way. As we come to the end of chapter 6, we've learned a lot about the love and care of our Heavenly Father to such an extent that we should conclude that if you seek His crown rights first and foremost, then all of the other needs, all of the other things that we worry about will be met. Our prayers will be heard. God who sees in secret or He hears in secret will reward you openly. Our worries will be calmed. Our anxieties over material world will go away. So let's close this time with four applications that I think that we can consider as we want to bring it to a head and be doers of the Word that God has challenged us this day. Stop doing it and don't ever go down that spiral again. And let's think about how we can put some things to play in our life corporately and individually. First of all, seek God's kingdom and His righteousness first in your prayer life. We've been focusing on this. But we need to be continually growing and seeking His crown rights first in our prayer life. Look what you go for first as you pray. Seek to be burdened with the greater issues of life than your personal needs. Is not life much more than these? That's what you need to be saying in your prayer life. And then you need to let that be the refrain that drives you back around to the greater things of life, the greater issues of life, the things which you will die for, the things which you will then live for, are the things that you should pray for. So examine your prayer life. What do you pray first and foremost? Are we really impassioned about the kingdom in our praying? A second application that I think that we could think about is the way you think about your job or your work. Because for men, this tends to be a great burden and a point of stress in our lives. And I'm also certain that it's also carried over to a stress and a burden for sometimes our wives. And then that trickles right down into our children and it... it, it it has a way of influencing the, the environment of the home. So don't fixate on your work. Just don't fixate on it. Now, do good work and work hard and enjoy the work that God has given you to do. Six days and then enjoy the seventh Sabbath that he gives us this day. But do good work. 
But your work is really your influence into the kingdom of God. Your work is the channel through which God will use that to be your influence in the world around you. When God is finished with that particular sphere of influence in whatever area that is, He'll close that, but He's going to provide something else. So you don't have to be fixated on this. And it's liberating if you're going to simply let that go, be faithful with what God's given you today, seek His kingdom and His righteousness first, even in your line of work, and the people you come in contact with, and He will bless you. A third application is to be considering all of those righteous characteristics that He has revealed about His kingdom citizens in chapter 5. These are the Beatitudes and the other parts of the ethical righteousness. So you need to be seeking your own greater humility and meekness and lowliness and sorrow for sin and continue to be growing in these characteristics in pursuit of holiness, to be more merciful with your life, to be more kind, to wake up to pursue making peace with your neighbor or bringing peace to those who are estranged. The love of others, even for those people who are hard to love, as Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and so love the enemies and bless those who curse you and, and be of this character and be seeking this in your life. And then a fourth application has to do with the way we view our activities. Now, as a whole, God's people rarely use their gifts and their talents and their resources for kingdom first in their lives. And I want you to think about the capacity for the kingdom of God that you can have with your talents and your resources and your giftings and your skills and all of your education and all of these things and take them and use them in seeking God's kingdom first in your life and with them. Now that has a lot of application that you'll have to think about. But serve the kingdom as a priority in your life. In fact... All of you over here in the pit need to be thinking about your music that God has gifted you with and blessed you with in terms of seeking the kingdom of God first in your life. Genuinely so. So that as you use it genuinely so first in your life, then the other things are going to fall right into its right place. If you first seek about your, your, your gifting and your music to be used for yourself or for some other venue or some other sphere or in some other place, you have got your priority upside down. For you that are in construction, for you that are in, in, you just name it, your gifts, your skills, your artistry, your creativity, you need to be seeking God's kingdom and His righteousness first with all of those things. doesn't mean you have to give all of your time to it but it means the priority in your spirit for the things that you get up seeking God's face for, that needs to be put first and foremost. And then if you do, your cup will run over. You'll look back and say, God not only met my base needs, man, He 
He just lavished upon me into the place where my cup continues to run over. It spills over. I cannot contain it. Because the gospel is a life of good news. In and of itself, it has good news. It is good news, but it is a life of good news. It is a good life that God has given. And the life is promised to us not only then and there, but here and now. So that even the sacrifices that we give up for God, He will restore manyfold over, even in this life, eternal life, He says. And the life that we have is a light to this unbelieving world who needs to see this goodness and this beauty and this truth lived out in your lives. And if you, they see you fretting and they see you worrying and anxious and fearful and driven and controlled by your fears, you are not being the shining light that God has called you to be. A life that knows the love and the promises of a heavenly Father who has proved Himself to you. And so we are called this day to make a radical change, not to ever return to that cycle of worrying again. But trust God in all things. Don't worry about your future. How many people have worried about their future and they ran right out in front of a car that very day? No reason to worry about your future. Troubles are going to come, but God is not going to give you more in a single day than what you can't bear. You don't need to worry about it. Don't need to worry about any of your bare essentials. Now, I'm not talking about makeup. Don't need to worry about any of that stuff. Don't need to worry about your work. Don't need to worry about your clothing. You don't need to worry about your lifestyle. Don't need to worry about any of that. Just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, they're going to be taken care of. Because your heavenly Father knows you need them, and He loves you more than you love yourself. Let's pray. Father, we are dull and stiff-necked and hard of heart so often to hear the truth and to yield our lives to it. But I am thankful that I've come once again to this verse that has refreshed my spirit and my faith and that reminds me to give it all up for Jesus and to follow Him. And when so doing, we find that, that he gives us back so many-fold times again those things that we thought that we were giving up. Lord, what, what is life? What is the essence of life? Is it not more than this material world in which we live and move? But Lord, it is in Christ Jesus and it is in him that we live and move and have our being. So, Lord, we pray that this day your Spirit would do a great work in our hearts and minds, that we would be fixed upon this and that we would be trustful in this and that we would be faithful in this. Give us the grace, we pray, and liberate us from these areas of of darkness that still incarcerate us, that we might walk in the light and so be the light today. In Jesus' name, amen.